Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now in America, we're having this 
conversation all of the sudden about immigrants and about religions and about backgrounds. And at the end of the day, I will only tell everybody, please, we are all in the same table. And I do believe that sometimes food is this amazing way to start telling you stories from people and faraway places. That was Jose Andres during a visit to his home outside of Washington, D.C. With over 20 restaurants, Jose is a master at mixing cuisines. Take his new restaurant, China Chocano, where he mixes Peru, China, and Japan all on one menu. I'll be speaking with Jose later in the show, but first, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to check in with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. So we want to do a recipe called Cracked Potatoes. It's from a restaurant, actually, in London called Moro, M-O-R-O. But the thing that's appealing is this is all done in a skillet, and it has a really unusual flavor and also texture. So how do we get started? So... We love smashed potatoes, but we wanted something easier. So our first trick here is to use the ridged side of a meat mallet or the bottom of a heavy skillet, and we're going to whack the raw potatoes one at a time until they're slightly flattened, but still quite intact. And then our second shortcut is to just use a skillet. Over medium-high heat, we're going to combine some oil and butter and then throw the potatoes straight in in a single layer and cook them without moving until they're well-browned. And then, here's my favorite part. For flavor, we use coarsely ground coriander and fennel seeds. And last of all, this will be your favorite part, we're going to use dry vermouth to give the potatoes some herbal notes, and they complement the coriander and fennel seeds. So vermouth, uh, you could use the dry white wine, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vermouth does have a little more alcohol and does have a little more flavor. Mm -hmm. So, Raina, you haven't really explained why... We're cracking the potatoes and why that's a good thing. So cracking the potatoes is the kind of rough treatment that's going to create uneven porous surfaces that makes it very easy for the potatoes to absorb all the flavor while they're cooking. So we're going to cover them and cook them until they're super creamy on the inside but well browned on the outside. That takes about 35 minutes. Very, very easy to do and it's a delicious dish. And what you really like is you can say, I'm serving you cracked potatoes. Because <laughs> it sounds really good. So thank you very much. A quick side dish, and you don't have to pre-cook the potatoes. It's all done in the skillet. Thank you, Raina. You're welcome. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm really good. How about you? Ready to take calls? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, it's Helenka Kinnan calling from Rome, Italy. Oh, my goodness. wanted to comment about something that I heard when you were speaking about olive oil. And you mentioned that you might put olive oil in the refrigerator, at which point I had to call and say something because no Italian would ever keep olive oil in the refrigerator. Well, I didn't say that. I think Sarah said that. No, I didn't. You are in olive oil heaven. Tell us about olive oil. What should we do? Olive oil should be kept as far away from light as possible because light is the real thing that's bad for olive oil. And also it should be kept in a cool, dry place in a container that is not glass, preferably. It should be kept in a tin that blocks out the light. Rachel Ray does make a ceramic teardrop-shaped olive oil holder with a tiny little spout. And that's what I use. It holds quite a lot and has a little tiny flap on the end. It's very narrow, so you don't get much oxygen in there. The other thing we found is a lot of the olive oil shipped over here is the stuff you guys 
won't use. <laughs> so we tend to get the dregs. You know, there's a whole big expose about Italian olive oil. And I, and I hate to say this, I don't want to beat up on Italy. I love Italy to death. But there was in this story some proof that uh, some of the oil that comes from Italy isn't 100% olive oil. Hazelnut there's other oil. oils yeah. in there. There have been a lot of problems with that, and that's why it's important to buy olive oil from a producer that right. you trust. In fact, we buy olive oil from friends of ours. Oh, wow. Isn't well, that wonderful? Can, can I ask you a question? Do you actually use olive yeah. oil for cooking? That is, do you heat it up, or do you reserve extra virgin for non-cooking purposes, like drizzling? The new extra virgin oil is the one that we use at the table. And say the older oil, last year's oil, or even a less high-quality oil is the one that we use for cooking. Right. And we only cook with olive oil, very rarely right. with butter or with other oils. Right. What, what if you're deep frying? Who deep fries? <laughs> oh, okay then. There you go. But, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure everybody knows that every year there's a new production of olive oil and that as it gets older, its flavor fades. Yes, exactly. Yes. Anyway, one last question. So have you ever had your olive oil get all thick and cloudy because it got too cold? And did you then use it afterwards? And was it then okay? Oh, absolutely. When we go up to our house in the country where there's no heat, uh, when we go into the kitchen, we regularly find that the olive oil has gotten hard. And then when it warms up again, it turns back into its regular shape. It has absolutely no effect on the oil at all. Wait, now I'm wait. confused. No, you started off by give, saying we were both g- giving wrong. us yes. trouble yeah. or whatever, criticizing us for the refrigerator thing. No, no, not criticizing. Just saying that no Italian would ever put uh, their oil in the refrigerator. Right. But if it does happen to get cold, it's really not a problem. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Well, That's definitive. Okay. All right. It's not cool. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so, so much welcome. for calling from Rome. Thank you. Okay. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lulu. Hi, Lulu. How are you? I'm great. How can we help you? You can help me by talking to me about beans. Whenever I cook dried beans, whether they be split peas, the green, the yellow, navy beans, small white beans, cannellini beans, I go through them dry, I rinse them, I drain them, I either cook them starting then or I soak them overnight or I boil them for two minutes and let them sit an hour. They all have this foamy, scummy stuff that comes up to the surface. What is that? It's a water-soluble protein, and you can just let it sit there. Oh, my. Your life is now, everything's good, because that's, it, just don't worry about it. My old aunt said, it's part of vitamin B, and I said, how could it be? It would be destroyed by the heat. Sounds like you cook a lot of beans. You should be soaking your beans, though, overnight, overnight with salt, salt and water. Yes. I should or should not? You should. You should. They'll be much but, better. But not lentils and split peas. No, those cook. Because no, those cook within 20 minutes or whatever it is. I thought the salt made the beans tougher. No, that's an old wives' tale. What does make them tougher is acid, but not salt. What the salt does is it allows the beans to cook evenly throughout, so you don't end up with blown you know, skins. They'll all be... Nice and silky and creamy. Huge difference in texture. And nicely flavored. Nicely flavored, and the whole bean will be intact. How much salt are we talking about? I would put in a tablespoon of kosher salt per quarter of water. Okay. And let it sit overnight. And then drain it. And drain it. And rinse it. And rinse it. Okay. And then add salt to the water that you cook it in, too. Salt's crucial. Oh, I have been so abstemious with salt. Well, because I, understandably, this, everybody said that salt was a bad thing for beans, and they were just wrong about this one thing. Where was oh. the salt industry in all of this? They should have I know, really. done a public service announcement. I know. That'll actually change your life. The beans will be much better.
Oh, I'm so yeah. glad you told me. Yeah. So, Can- yeah, and, and don't worry about scum. Let it sit there and then drain the beans. And when you drain the beans. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Oh, I'm just talking about the scum comes when I'm cooking. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. But he's saying when you're done, you're not cooking them in, right. a, in an exact amount of liquid. So you drain the beans right. afterwards and the scum will drain off. Right. Oh, well, usually I start adding vegetables after the beans have cooked halfway. You're still going to end up draining the water, right? Well, no, because the pot isn't filled. And when the beans approach the level of the water, which is at least half or less, then I start adding homemade stock. Oh, so you're making a soup. Yes. Got ah, it. Sorry, we didn't that, understand that. Was a piece that. Of data. We didn't understand well, that. Well, okay, then if you're not going to drain it out, you're actually making a soup, yeah, then just skim it off. I'm so grateful. I never yeah. thought of that. Thanks. That's terrific. Thanks, Thank Lou. you very much. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring anytime. The number is one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hello, who's calling? Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Where are you calling from? From Buffalo, New York. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Um, I come from a European family, and I never questioned the fact that the cookbooks always had weights instead of cups and pints. I was watching the uh, British Bake Show, and I realized that Europeans tend to weigh the ingredients, and Americans tend to half cups, you know, full cups, whatever. I was wondering how that evolved. I don't know why I don't Europe does, and we don't. don't. I know, actually, because I've read a lot of 19th century cookbooks, until the 1880s and 90s, even the cup me- and tablespoon wasn't standardized. They had something called really? a silver spoon. They would have a rounded tablespoon. They would have a, a sort of walnut of butter, you know, or a knob of butter. Yeah. It was extremely huh. imprecise until about 1890 when the cookware industry started to standardize measurements. So you'd have a teacup of sugar. Yeah, that's what I'm, I seem yeah. to remember from the old cookbooks is a teacup. And that's not consistent either. I just wonder whether American cooking relatively speaking, was not as fine and developed as a lot of people. Well, they weren't doing torts and multi-layer things. And maybe no. maybe a pie, for example, wasn't that crucial to get everything just right. The Americans came from England, or they came from Europe, so I would have thought they would have had that same background. Yeah, but if you look at the books from the 19th century, with some exceptions, like Charles Randhofer around 1900, but most of the cooking wasn't that on a very high level compared to what was going on, let's say, in baking in Europe at the time. Well, I mean, I mean the part of it was they were just trying to get settled yeah. and just carry on and get through the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Fanny Farmer or the Settlement Cookbook and some of those, it's not really at the level that you find in Europe at the time. So maybe that was part of it the just, reason, but I don't know. It just took a while to evolve because, you know, they didn't have the materials here. Yeah, my wife tells me I'm still evolving. I'm trying to, <laughs> one hopes. Yeah. So I don't really know, but you should use a digital scale. Uh, make sure you get one that does ounces and grams, that, and you can right. switch back and forth easily. They should all tear, which means if you put a ball on the scale and hit the button, it'll go to zero. zero. And the good right. thing there is, as you know, if you are weighing more than one ingredient, you can keep tearing, so you don't have Correct. to take things uh-huh. in and out of the bowl. Yeah, so Veronica, you do have a scale. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> She's, I do. I have the European one that my mother and then I have a digital one. The things you really definitely want to measure digital. is flour, absolutely, because mm-hmm. if you do it just by volume, mm-hmm. you can be off 20% easily. Yeah. yeah, Sugar's not so hard, but I think flour is really the, the key, key one. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. Thank you very yeah. much. 
Pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I travel to Washington, D.C. to chat with internationally recognized culinary innovator, Jose Andres. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is 
kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Recently, I visited my friend Jose Andres at his home outside of Washington, D.C. Jose is a molecular gastronomist, a humanitarian, a restaurateur. In another age, Jose would have been a natural philosopher, a sort of do-it-yourself scientist who searches for the meaning of the universe through the lens of food. So I met you years ago. I was at a book signing in Bethesda, and you stood in line— I didn't know, I knew about you, but I never met you. And you just stood in line and introduced yourself as as a humble (laughs) book purchaser. And then I discovered that you have over 20 restaurants and you fly around the world and you do all these other things. Let's start with beginnings. Uh, Where'd you grow up and how did you start cooking? So yes, I was in line waiting for you because I wanted to meet you because I've been always, uh, I always had a crush on you, on your hope. (laughs) perfect your recipes are and, and really when I knew you were coming here so many years ago and you had this big line of people waiting first to hear from you and second get one of your amazing books it was too good to be true so yes and now I'm so proud to call you a friend after so many years about my beginnings um, you know I come from a working family my mother and my father they were nurses enfermeros I was born in North Spain, Asturias. My mother was from Basque Country. My father was from Aragon. We moved to Catalonia very early on. So even in my own country, I've been an immigrant all my life. I arrived to the States first on the Spanish Navy on a sail ship uh, as a Navy boy. And when I finished my military service, I got the opportunity to come back to America. And here I am 25 years later and I am an immigrant. I've been an immigrant all my life. And I think that's why what I love about cooking so much than a person that loves eating and a person that loves cooking and a person that loves to have many different ingredients in their kitchens. That means that they love everything immigrants are all about because we all are immigrants one way or another. I interviewed Naomi, Do Good, Sweet, Sour, Salty, Bitter, Burma, some other books, and she told me a story of being in Armenia, I think, in the late afternoon. She didn't speak the language. She was in an orchard. A woman brought her home, served her an apple and tea, and she got quite emotional. And she said that was the moment when she realized we were all just sitting around the same table, which I love that image. And it seems to me, you mentioned immigrant. Um, this idea of our food versus their food, you know, it was called ethnic cooking, which seems ridiculous to me. Do, do you agree with that? Like we're all just sitting at the same table? Huh. <laughs> oh, sure, we are sitting at the same table in so many ways, in ways we don't realize. And I do believe that sometimes 
jazz food is this uh, amazing way to start telling you stories from people and faraway places. Right now, in this DNA in America, we're having this conversation all of the sudden about immigrants if, and about religions and about backgrounds and about if you are white or black. And at the end of the day, I will only tell everybody, please open your refrigerator, just go to a supermarket, just read the story of the hot dog and read the story of the ketchup and anything else you want. And there you're going to see that, that, yes, everybody is who they are. We all should know where we come from. We all should know where we belong. But between the coming from and the, and the belong is this amazing story that can be told through food that at the end, yes, I agree, we are all in the same table. But the more important is not like you know that you are at the table and you are part of the table, but that you know who you are with at the table. So know your neighbor, know who they are, look at them in the eyes. And it's okay that you know who you are and that you are proud of who you are, but the true pride should be in you knowing who others sitting in the table are too. As usual, you are more eloquent <laughs> than I am. Um, well said. Uh, you told me a story a year ago. You were in Mexico City uh, at, at the home of a couple. I think one of one of them was from China. One was from Peru. Is that correct? And and then you were in the middle of a restaurant launch. You called your manager that night and said, "Stop." Uh, we're not doing what I said we were doing. We're doing Chinese Peruvian. Could you just tell us story? Yeah, we, we were actually in Lima, Peru. Oh. But could be that the same story happened right there in Mexico because something like this happened. Uh, but I'm in Lima, Peru, and in Mistura, which is an, uh, an amazing food event. And the, the child of the great Gaston Acurio, one of the legendary chefs, of uh, Latin America and the world, more than a chef, a politician, a, a thinker. And I was with Gaston having a great time, and, and I was opening this Chinese restaurant after many years traveling through China. And all of a sudden, you, you learn, uh, you read about the connection between China and Japan and Peru. So I thought like, man, the Chinese restaurant can be great, but I already have a Mexican Chinese Let's go and let's do this again, restaurant which celebrates Peru, but also through the mixing over centuries of other people and other cultures and other ingredients and other cooking. And we did China Chilcano, which is my homage to not only the people of Peru, but my homage to, to the bridges that immigrants like me are. We are not just people, we are bridges, we are uniting. Recipes are bridges that unite ingredients and unite faraway places. And this was a way for me to tell the story of what I saw, but the story of centuries of, of people, the melting pot that makes the world better and richer in so many ways. So I'm putting myself a little bit of wine. So what we are drinking here, because you cannot see us, people, but we are drinking. It's uh, one of my favorite American wines, 2005 Cabernet Sauvignon, from Acel Vineyard in Napa Valley, Araujo. Araujo, to me, is one of the great wineries in, in the States, in the world. 
And that's what we are drinking. Yes, we're not drinking water, not like water is not good for you, but we are drinking the essence of the terroir. <laughs> I, an hour ago, you were cooking a garlic soup and you picked up a terracotta pot and you talked about it as if it were a, a pregnant woman. So you talked about the ingredients going in and all of a sudden they started to grow and they became alive. And you had an enormous affinity and love for this pot. And then we cooked it in metal, which you don't have much love for. So, so th there's this spiritual attachment to the, the tools, if they're the right tools. Why is terracotta so, in that case, so special to you? I mean, it was obviously yeah. emotional, right? Well, uh, I love terracotta in so many ways. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know what's my connection. Uh, obviously, I've been cooking with terracotta since I saw my father and mother cooking. And it's very traditional where I come from. And it's very traditional in many parts of the world. And for many centuries, terracotta is what humanity used to feed themselves. Let's face it. So I guess I get some of this DNA. But, you know, I, I could be telling you stories. Maybe it was that Prometheus really legend says that created man out of clay and Prometheus was very much also the same person that gave us the control of fire and taught us how to control fire so to me terracotta and fire terracotta is it's, it's almost like we are cooking with the same elements where our food comes from and to me it's something very I would say almost romantic is is, is very special, it's difficult to explain. When I cook with terracotta, which is not easy to handle, but once you, you learn it and you fall in love with that and the terracotta fall in love with you, it's a very simple kind of relationship. And me, I have a good relationship with terracotta. So I think it's fair to say for you, foods, recipes, tools, pots are anthropomorphic. You refer to the soup as a she. You refer to the garlic as a he. You talk about how well they get together. They're dancing together. They're all friends. Uh, you're a friend to the soup. <laughs> you, you, food for you is highly personal, and it's not just personal. It, it has a context which is, I don't know, you, maybe you're a secret Buddhist or something, but you, you have a view of, of cooking that is, is wide, broad, and deep. Well, I think sometimes these ingredients, they don't have a voice on their own. And you have to, to speak on their behalf. I don't know why and when I began talking to them, like if they are present. But I think to me it's been always very natural. It's like I, 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 I don't see anything wrong in speaking to, to your tomatoes. What is very clear that if you don't speak to them, they'll never speak back to you because they are super shy. I think we take our farmers for granted. I think we take our our oyster farmers and fishermen for granted. When you go on a boat for 24 hours and you see how hard it is to bring us a piece of fish, is 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 really very humbling. So I always try to really have that very unique connection, because if if I am a cold-blooded chef that only buys ingredients and invest in restaurants and then you transform those ingredients in dishes and I sell them without any further connection to that food, it's very difficult to really be a chef because at the end you are being a translator, you are being an ambassador. 
And to be a good translator and a good ambassador of your ingredients, you really need to know them. I don't know if you're hopeful about the future or scared to death about the future or something in between, but if, when you look at what's going on in the kitchen today, here and around the world, does that make you more hopeful or less hopeful? Uh, I see that we have a big problem with hunger today in the world. So this is a problem that we have, but I only see it as an opportunity. Because if we can be bringing the few billion people that still go hungry today every day, imagine what this can do to the world economy. So chefs like me, what are we doing about it? Well, I'm a cook, and I'm a cook thanks to the stove. I'm a cook thanks to the fire. I realize that I'm going to be concentrating the rest of my lifetime to make sure I bring a cook stove to every single poor person in the world. Because if I bring a cook stove, they will not inhale the smoke that is making many women sick or even die. Uh, if I bring them a clean cook stove, they will make sure that their children don't have to be every day picking up wood when they cannot buy charcoal instead of going to school and receive proper education. When I give them a good stove, they will stop cutting so many trees that is creating deforestation and many problems. So I realize that if we bring cook stoves to the world, we can end hunger and poverty. So I'm hopeful because there's plenty of opportunities for us to end hunger and poverty. But then here at home, we have many opportunities too. We have a farm bill that is not working because it's not serving the people of America. It's serving the few corporations. Why we don't give the same subsidies to the small farmer that can create so many jobs all across uh, the poorest areas of America? The way we eat is a boat. What we should be feeding our family is a way of boating. It's a way of democracy. And today, the army of people that believe that food can change the world is growing. And I'm hopeful because I think that more of us involved, we will create a better world. That's why I'm hopeful. Jose, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. That was Jose Andres, chef owner of the Think Food Group, which has over 20 restaurants worldwide. You know, I'm amused when friends are surprised when someone they think they know, usually a celebrity, is actually a complex human being. The comedian is actually serious, the slapstick actress graduated from Oxford, or the wild and crazy chef is a humanitarian. So let me tell you two stories about Jose. Late one evening, he invited me to a private club in Washington that had just made him an honorary member. I showed up near midnight and found a scene from La Dolce Vita, a bar, a pool table, drinks all around, and Jose was, of course, the center of attention. A few months before that, at lunchtime at a restaurant hotel in Boston, Jose was soft-spoken, a little tired, but he spoke with great eloquence about bringing solar ovens to the developing world to help stop deforestation and reduce health problems relating to inhaling smoke from cooking fires. So there you go, two very different Jose's. And like most people, there are many, many more. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Claire Patak. She's owner of the Violet Bakery in East London, also author of the Violet Bakery Cookbook about what she cooks on a Tuesday night. Welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Happy to be here. So it's Tuesday night. Um, it's 5.30, and um, you need to put dinner on the table. Any suggestions for, you know, half hour, 45 minutes to, to get something on the table? 
Oh, yeah. Half hour, 45 minutes. I can't go to my go-to coming home pasta, which is really, which is one I definitely do quite often with a can of tomatoes. But I love to grill vegetables. I just have like a griddle pan and it's the easiest thing and it's so good. And you can either blanch the vegetables a little bit beforehand in water, salted water, or you can just put them right on. And I just like, I love to get the, you know, really charred edges on the veg and just do that and then serve it with, this is back to my California hippie roots, but I love tahini with a little lemon juice and a little bit of water and some garlic in the mortar and pestle and just drizzle that over that. And that's kind of a really good dinner. I mean, you could do a little rice if you felt more hungry, but, um, you know, just a lot of vegetables sometimes is all you need. <laughs> That's because you spend all day in a bakery. So you're eating exactly. charred zucchini for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think I need a little something with that. Okay, so then some rice. So then you could okay. y- you could make some, some brown rice. <laughs> brown rice. Or you could do basmati rice. Delish. Soak it first. Much, much easier. Um, yeah, but then I always, you know, because I'm always leaving room for dessert as well, so I'd have uh, to have a little oh, sweet treat oh, afterwards. I see. You forgot <laughs> to mention that. And, and, and yeah. make sure you put the Grateful Dead on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, definitely. While you're eating your charred <laughs> zucchini. Yeah. Claire, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat 
with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moey, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Nelson Ayala. I'm calling from Delaware. How can we help you? So I have a question about making a cheese sauce. And I have, from what I understand, it's called a bechamel, I guess. And I have just figured out that you're not supposed to use bagged cheese because it has starches on it. Right. And that causes the cheese to clump up. So I've actually been asking around some of my chef friends, and they've been telling me that you can put things like vinegar, use a, um, a hand mixer, or put it through like a, a colander or something with, with, with fine mesh to get it nice and smooth. So I was wondering, what's the best way to make a cheese sauce? Well, first of all, bechamel is not a cheese sauce. It's just ah. it's flour and butter, and then you add milk to it. So it's a cream sauce, if you like, dairy gotcha. sauce. A Mornay oh. would be right, a, a cheese sauce I'm speaking to the French expert. Well, with Gruyere. The only trick with any kind of sauce with cheese is you want a fairly young cheese that has a fair amount of moisture in it because it'll melt properly. A really dry cheese, aged cheese, will not. So any relatively young cheese, if just grated and added to the bechamel, for example, and whisked, will melt, right? I mean, yes. It's not that hard. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to... Well, my, my question is, what are some of the cheeses that are best to do that? Fresh cheddar. Fresh cheddar's yeah. good. Gruyere would be fine. Gruyere would be good. You know, any cheese that has a higher moisture. I mean, the ones you don't want to use, or if you do, you want them to be very fine and don't use too much, is Parmesan. Right. The drier-aged cheeses. Right. Little mozz work. Yeah. And mozzarella melt fine. But it was usually cheddar, gruyere. Those are the types of things you could use, sure. Right. Cheddar, gruyere. Okay. Swiss and cheese. And then that's different from fondue, of course. Yes. I mean, yeah. a cheese okay. sauce is... To, well, hey... You know, hey, fondue could be considered a cheese sauce. Why not? You know, I was in Switzerland not too long ago in a store, and they actually had a whole wall of fondue pots. I mean, they still make fondue. I'm Swiss- sure they do. No, I, was, I thought this I'm was like five, and I make fondue. I thought oh, this I'm was, so glad you make fondue. I thought this was like a historical aside. No, no, fondue is fabulous. No, <laughs> do you have good success with your fondue? They tell me it's good, but do I believe them? No. So, what do you start with? Usually, I start with like a cheddar, and then I'll mix it with, I don't know, whatever I have around, usually mozz or something, and it comes out weird. It comes out like real thin on top and then thick on the bottom, 
and you end up having to stir it a lot. Whereas, like, it's, I want like a nice, consistent. I, w- I wouldn't be putting mozzarella in my fondue. I don't think that. I mean, I, I, raclette. I'm calling. Ra- I have no idea what I'm doing. One of the best cheeses, of course, they do in Switzerland is raclette. You know, has that wonderful flavor. raclette cheese. Oh, it's yeah, so that's good. really good yeah, stuff. That's terrific. Anyway, yeah, wow. I, I wouldn't use mozzarella. No. Okay. So, all right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. Th- thanks for keeping fondue alive. Yes. Somebody's no got to do it. All okay. right. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Julia. Hi, Julia. How are you? Good. Thank you. So how can we help you? When I was growing up, my mom would always tell me when she was cooking with spinach and other greens that to cut the bitterness of the spinach you would a pinch of nutmeg. And so my question is, does it really help? And secondly, is a pinch enough? Wow. Well, the French often will add a pinch of nutmeg to spinach. And there's other things that you just add a pinch of nutmeg to that are, let's think of some of the others, Chris. I think sometimes a bechamel. I think it might be one of those traditional things, but I am not aware of any chemistry that it helps the spinach in any way. I think it's just yeah. flavor. Somehow it goes with spinach. But spinach isn't all that bitter. No, it's, is it? not. it's more the, what is it called? It, it, it's, it's that. <laughs> it's not like a tannin or anything, like in wines or anything. That's a good Would question. Chris and I just looked at each other well, like, that's I, an interesting idea. Th- this is our last week of Milk Street Radio because we, we can't answer <laughs> well, no, such but, a basic question. No, but I'm thinking that there's something that's in spinach. When you squeeze it, I can't remember what it's called. You know what it is? What? I do remember. It's oxalic acid. acid. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. But yes. when you said tannins, Chris and I just looked at each other like... Well, it's similar. Because it does the same thing yeah. to your mouth. Yeah, puckers. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, sort of weird. Yeah. I grew up in South America, so we were using big leaf spinach. So, so, so wait, 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 wait. South America to Wisconsin, were you in Peru by any chance? I was. I knew that because they make a pesto. Italian immigrants in the late 19th century yes. made a pesto. There you go. That just happens to be in the latest Milk Street magazine. It's the only reason wow. I knew it. Yeah. yeah that's pretty Well, cool. that's the only reason I knew it is because I saw the latest queso issue. fresco. And it's Talarenas Verdes or something, right? Yes. Tallarinas Verdes. Green spaghetti. We do use basil, but we use spinach and a fresh cheese right. and a little bit of milk. And so it's not the traditional Mediterranean pesto, Italian pesto. Well, the other thing they the other thing they did when my editor was down there, they cooked the pesto in a skillet with the pasta that was undercooked, and you finished the pasta with the pesto. Any other liquid in the pan? You might add a little bit of cooking water, yeah, wow, like a quarter cup. But you end up really absorbing the pesto into the pasta. Is it green when you're done? No, it's not green, but it has a little bit of greenish tinge to it. But it's a deep flavor in the pasta. It's nice, and it's a creamier sauce because we add the cheese, and the milk. Have you noticed I've completely changed the topic now and we've gotten away from our failure to identify the chemistry of nutmeg? Well, at least you that remembered okay. oxalic acid. I did remember oxalic That's acid. That's impressive. Thank you for calling. Actually, we will do a little research on that. Okay. I think it's mostly Wonderful. taste, but we'll see. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. okay. Well, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, pleasure. All right, Thanks. Julia. Bye. Okay. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring anytime. The number is one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Andy. Hi, Andy. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Louisville, Kentucky. Nice. Yes. What is your question? 
So a uh, quick backstory to get to the question. I've been learning how to make yeast-raised donuts here at my house with very mm. basic home equipment. The dream would be to own a donut shop eventually. So the specific statement and then question is that I follow nearly the same process all the time with my dough. I seem to get a good rise out of it. Then I let the donuts proof. Whenever they proof, though, and I fry them, they're never quite the consistency I want. And what I've found over the past couple months is when I take the extra dough left over and I roll it back up and put it in the fridge and I try the next day to then let it come to room temperature and roll those out, those next day donuts are always a better, softer consistency than the same day dough. But I'd really love the same day dough to be just as good as that. I don't know what I'm doing wrong exactly. Well, you're doing nothing wrong because letting yeasted dough sit in the refrigerator, you get flavor development, but you also get a more stable dough. And yeah. so that really slow, cool fermentation is wonderful if you have the time. So I, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I just think a cool ferment the next day produces better product. I have a question for Chris, because I'm learning here, too. I mean, I know with all those no-need breads, you always do them in the refrigerator, but you use a lot less yeast than you would. Yes, you would. That might be something you want to try as well, Andy, is cutting back on the yeast and giving it, you know, a day in the fridge or two days in the fridge just to see what happens. But, I mean, what's interesting about that, you said you'd like to be able to make it the same day, but, hey, if you plan ahead, I'm thinking about your donut shop, and, you know, you just make a new batch for two days later or three days later, then you're still in business. You just have to plan ahead. It's not a problem. I, I would think the other thing you could play with is the amount of liquid in your recipe because the hydration. So you have a wetter dough or drier dough, that would significantly affect the texture. So you might mm. you might want to play with that. If you want more holes in it and sort of more of a holier donut, you might increase the water percentage. Okay. If you wanted the denser, less holier <laughs> donut, you would decrease the water. You might try that. Does the amount of sugar in the dough greatly affect it? I've read that if I have a whole lot of sugar compared to flour ratio the sugar tends to use up more of the moisture? Yes, sugar is hygroscopic, which means it attracts water. And so it it may make a more stable dough, but it certainly would attract liquid. Yes, that's true. Well, try that, uh, let it overnight, and then also fiddle with the amount of liquid, and that might also change the texture too. Great, great point. Thank you all so very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, Andy. Have a good one. Okay. Hello, who's calling? This is Marissa from Andover, Kansas. Hi, Marissa. What is your question today? In our house, um, we have a lot of food allergies. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yeah. We have watermelon and cantaloupe, which that's not a big problem. But then we also have tree nuts, peanuts, dairy, and eggs. Whoa. Uh Oh, poor you. I've grown to get used to it. The real question I had was I've yet to figure out how to make brownies without eggs. Most of the cookies I've nailed, brownies aren't going so well. I've tried the vegan recipes, but the texture's just off. It's like a chocolate kind of muffin bread. Even if I just try to use a brownie mix and put flax eggs in it, mm-hmm. it ends up an oily mess. So the question is, is what are eggs doing in the brownie batter, and how can I work around that? Well, Ghirardelli, I remember years ago we did test the mixes, and the Ghirardelli brownie mix was actually really fudgy and chewy. But it I mean, it was have really egg, good, but it d- probably has eggs, in, eggs it, right? in it, yeah. It doesn't, actually, oh. and that's the one that turns into an oily mess if you use flax eggs. 
and I've tried reducing oh. the oil, and it's still just not right. Wait, they call it flax eggs? What's flax eggs mean? You mean it's not flax seed? You take one tablespoon of ground flax seed, and you mix three tablespoons of warm water, and oh. you let it gel. Oh, I see. And that acts as a binder and for cookies and things like that. Has it worked for you in other recipes? It works for me in everything else. Ah, interesting. Well, the eggs in a brownie mix, their yolks are emulsifiers, which means that one end would attach to oil and the other end would attach to water. And that's why you get the right texture. Okay. It sounds like the flax seeds, hydrated flax seeds, are just creating a thick texture, but I don't think it's an emulsifier necessarily, I, yeah. which is probably well, a problem. Well, I'm going to throw out a wild and crazy idea. Don't eat brownies. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> have you heard, Chris, I'm sure you have, about what chickpea liquid can do? Yes, I have. It's sure. called aquafaba. It's the name they've given to it. So somebody figured out, I forget who it was, that if you took chickpea liquid, you know, the can of chickpeas, or if you cooked yeah. them yourself and drained off the liquid, and took that liquid and beat it and added sugar, you'd end up with meringues. Likewise, really? you can use chickpea liquid in place of egg yolk to emulsify a mayonnaise. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that last part. Yeah. Really? So. Oh. But I can't tell you, unfortunately, how much chickpea liquid you should use. How many ounces is an egg? Six. Can't remember. No, it couldn't be for one egg, would it? No. I know. You could even Google it and figure out how many ounces. And I'm not sure it'd be the same amount. Because uh, it's the egg yolk that does the emulsifying. It could be a goose egg. Is five <laughs> a humongous dinosaur really, egg a might really be big six one. Ounces. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a. Di- but at <laughs> any rate, I would try the chickpea liquid. And if you want, Google uh, Google aquafaba. Give it a shot. I'd love to hear how it works. Yeah, because we'd about given up on brownies around here. I know. And they're so wonderful, aren't they? Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope this works, and I really would love to know if it does. Yeah, I'll have to play with that and figure that out. Okay. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring, one 855 or 1-855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. By the way, you can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and also TuneIn, and at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to flavor whipped cream. You know, plain unsweetened whipped cream may be a good foil for a chocolate cake, but it turns out that most of the creams you buy in the supermarket have very little flavor at all. So here's how to actually add flavor and also texture. You can use creme fraiche or Greek yogurt or sour cream in place of, let's say, a third to half of the whipping cream. And by the way, you can also swap out the plain white sugar and instead use brown sugar or honey or agave or even palm sugar. Now you have a really appealing whipped cream with lots of flavor that can turn even a bowl of berries into a standalone dessert. Right now it's time to talk to regular guest, Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Aaron, how are you? I'm good, as always, and thanks for having me. A pleasure. This is your opportunity to get your anger out and... and <laughs> ah! 
Absolutely. I look and forward to it. And tell the world how things really are. So so what's on your mind? Uh, so this week I thought we might talk about guidelines and, and sometimes of how they've fallen down in the past and how food nutrition sometimes falls prey to the, the problems that many organizations see when they try to recommend to people what they should be doing, especially in this case with eating. So so what's an example of that? So we talked before, and, and it's the perfect example, so it's worth bringing up again about peanuts and how uh, for a long time doctors and other organizations were so worried about kids getting peanut allergies that they recommended that we make kids avoid peanuts. And that as research evolved, it turned out that, yeah, of course, kids with allergies should avoid peanuts, but by making all kids avoid peanuts, we probably made things worse. And now guidelines are being rewritten to say that kids should be exposed, most of them, to peanut protein when they're very young in order to avoid allergies. And this is a great example of how we sometimes make wide, broad-spread recommendations that we don't really know enough about, and that winds up leading to problems. And with nutrition, we say that something is not great for one group, and then we say, well, everyone should be eating that way, be it low-fat, low-carb, low-protein, whatever it is. We, we, we say it's good for everybody. Or we cherry-pick research. We cite a certain mouse study or, or something that somebody published in some obscure journal, and we ignore all of the evidence that, that goes in its other direction. Or it can be like what we saw with the peanuts, where we just assume that all the changes we're making have to be good, and we fail to consider the harms that might result down the line. And, you know, there's a lot of people that will argue that the huge low-fat movement of the 60s, 70s, and 80s resulted in us eating a ton of carbs and might have contributed to the obesity epidemic. And now we're not sure if we're swinging back the other way. But there's a question, an obvious question, which is like cohort studies. You see two trends and you link them together, even though they may not be related at all. Mm -hmm. When you look at this research in retrospect since the 1940s or 50s in health and food, et cetera, some of it is ludicrous. I mean, just ludicrous. The margarine yeah. thing, and we went after fat, but we didn't go after sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. there are two choices. A, follow the money, like somebody st stands to make money off of a particular outcome in research. Or two, there's just something wrong about how we do research and, and the, the medical scientific community just doesn't have its rules and regulations in place. Is it both? Or I, I just don't understand. I think it's both. I, I don't think it's a choice. I think that the truth of the matter is it's all those and more. You know, sometimes when we talk about conflicts of interest, we, we fixate immediately on the financial conflicts of interest, on the idea that, you know, it must be companies or it must be real money drivers pushing it. But we fail to acknowledge academic conflicts of interest, that people's careers are built on certain oh. hypotheses and that they don't want to see that disproven. There's ideological conflicts of interest where just people really entrench themselves in believing one thing or the other to be true because it fits their worldview and they don't want to ever look the other way or, or have any evidence that that's wrong. And while all of that is true, there's also huge problems with the way we do epidemiologic research. You know, positive results are more likely to get published. We call that publication bias. Shocking results are more likely to get published. So if we do 10 studies and nine of them show no association between some food and cancer, no one really cares. No one's going to publish that. But the 10th study shows a, a big positive relationship. That's much more likely to get published and hit the media. And so a lot of the times what we see with big cohort studies is you make a big enough study, you're going to find an association if you test enough things, and that's what makes the news. And then we, find, we figured that that must be true. And unfortunately, those don't hold when we do careful follow-up clinical trials. Well, that was my next question. You're a doctor, a pediatrician. You know how to look at the research for someone like me, who's not a doctor. 
Uh, mm-hmm. What's your advice to me? Ignore all, <laughs> all nutritional advice or what? Well, part of it is when you read news stories about studies, you have to recognize that there are many different kinds of studies. And studies that are just looking for associations by doing either what we call case control studies or cohort studies, they're good for hypothesis generation. Well, could you explain explain what a cohort study is? Sure. So a cohort study would be when we take a large group of people, follow them for a period of time, and then see um, how outcomes differ and also how some factors differ among them. So perhaps we see like we're men more likely to get something than women or we're older people more likely to get something than younger people. A case control study is even weaker, but that would be when we take people who have a certain disease or bad outcome, we pair them up with people who didn't, and then we try to figure out what's different between those two groups. Those two types of studies are good for what we call hypothesis generation or for trying to figure out if maybe there's a link, maybe some idea, maybe something we should be worried about that we should then go out and test in a controlled trial. So if we looked and said, hey, it turns out that red meat causes colon cancer in these cohort studies, then maybe we should do a trial where we feed people different amounts of meat and see if they actually change their rates of cancer. And in the cohort studies, we find that there's often these big links that we can see, but when we do follow-up clinical trials, those links are, those Hmm. causal pathways are much harder to tease out. So at the end of the day, you put down the newspaper, put down the computer and eat. Well, that, and I also, whenever a doctor or anyone else tells me what I should or should not be eating, I ask them for what the evidence is behind it. And if they don't know the answer, or if it's a lot of vague associative cohort studies or case control studies, I'm much more likely to ignore their advice than if there's the solid weight of good randomized controlled trials behind it. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Thank you. Great pleasure. Listening to Dr. Carroll, it made me wonder what sort of medical advice I was getting back in the 1950s when I was a kid. Well, here are a few. Camels were sold on the pleasure principle. The ad says, pleasure helps your disposition. Or, lose 40 pounds while listening to Wallace reducing records. Or, take high-potency capsules to avoid sleepy afternoons. And your children will grow straight as an arrow with Scott's emulsion. Some things just never change. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant, Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egrar. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 